coming up on the Doctorpreneurs Podcast. I think the industry has recognized the, the, the need to protect people from a, a transmissible virus, not only from a physical problem on the airplane. This is the Doctorpreneurs Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Dr. Pranos Podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Dr. Lim, and together with my co-host, Andrew Mastrindonas. Andrew, floor is yours. Thank you. Uh, well, today we have a very special guest. This is Ben Baldanza, who is, and if I get this wrong, let me know, formerly CEO of Spirit Airlines. That's former, right, Andrew. <laughs> formerly, let me think, Senior Vice President of U.S. Airways. Yep. And you spent some time in American, or was it Continental? I forget. Way back Both. when. Both. <laughs> All right. All right. So you did you did American pre-merger, basically, with you. Yeah. Okay. Got yes. it. So you worked at most of the major airlines in effect. Well, I worked at six airlines, Andrew. And of those six, only two of them still fly under their same name, American and Spirit. <laughs> All right. So Continental's gone. Who else? Um, U.S. Airways is gone. Oh, yeah, yeah, obviously. <laughs> and Taka Airlines is gone. They're part of Avianca now. Ben, I tell you, I love Taka. I used to fly it all the time out of San Jose when I lived in Costa Rica, down to Lima and all that. I love Taka. And Avianca is a great airline, too, actually. Yeah. And Northwest is gone because they're part of Delta. <laughs> so. Oh, yeah. I remember them. Well, anyways, just some brief background. Uh, ben and I were at overlapped at U.S. Airways in the early 2000s. As I said, he was a senior VP and you were, it was a marketing and sales, basically the whole marketing organization, right? Yeah. Marketing and sales. That's right. Yeah. And I was doing, I did the online sales portion of it, working with the online travel agencies, Expedia, Travelocity, all of them. And I, and I think you agree, those were kind of the heyday of online travel. We were really pushing a lot of business through those channels and growing it rapidly. I mean, it was almost nothing when I started and it became you know, a billion part of the business at that time, I think. That's exactly right. And you were there, I think, if you remember when we had that little tiff with Expedia, where yes. we actually stopped them from selling U.S. Airways. And we created this great ad that showed this toll booth that usairways.com was free and Expedia would cost you $10 to go through the booth. And you, that ran, that fun, in Seattle. you ran that in Seattle, right? That's right. <laughs> yeah, that was great. You know, the, you know, we were what, number four or five carrier at that time, I think. And yeah. Expedia was a giant in the online travel space, and they thought it could put they could push us around. They wanted to kind of like you know take advantage of our size. And Ben and the team came up with this idea to really push back on them, and it worked. And it was because I was spending, I think I spent months and months and months going back and forth with Expedia on doing a deal, and we just couldn't get it done. So that's just a little inside baseball kind of stuff. But uh, so tell us, Ben, sort of what you I mean, I know you're at Spirit. We don't need to talk about that. But what have you been doing sort of since then? When did you leave Spirit and kind of what have you been doing? Well, I left Spirit in 2016 in really for two reasons, Andrew. One is that the company had changed a lot. When I joined Spirit, it was a real fixer upper in a sense. Yeah. Right. The airline didn't have a great strategy. And creating a strategy for the airline, implementing that was really fun. By 2015 or so, the airline was running very well. So the job was just a little different. Also on the personal side, my wife and I had our first and only son in 2006. And he was start to be started to become like, you know, a sentient being by that point. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and, uh, and we really didn't want to raise him in South Florida. And so we made the plans to move back in 2014, but it took about two years to make the transition happen. So he moved in 2016 back up to the Washington DC area where we were when we worked together. Right. And um, now what I do is I serve on a couple different company boards. I serve on the public boards of JetBlue and Six Flags Entertainment, the theme park company. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and then I serve on some private boards. 
And I have my own podcast. And if you don't mind me plugging, I'll say it's airlinesconfidential.com. It's wow. a weekly podcast about the airline industry. And then I teach a college class also on airlines. It's called Airline Economics. I teach it at George Mason University. And the thing I'm most proud about that is that over 20 of my students since I've been teaching the class now work in the airline industry. And I think that's great. Wow. Oh, wow. So, so is this part of a general business curriculum? Is that how it's offered? It's actually offered in the economics department ah. as an elective to economics students, but plenty of business school students take it as well. And some engineers take it too. Those that are interested in sort of aviation engineering and want to learn more the business side of things. And so it's a, it's a very applied class. And we talk about in the class, we talk about all the ways airlines really make decisions, how they decide what to price, where, how they decide where to fly, what airplanes to use, how do they finance those planes, how does distribution work, how do frequent flyer programs work, how, does, how do airlines schedule, how do alliances really work. We talk right. about all that stuff. I imagine you could spend a whole semester just on pricing and revenue management alone. You probably could. I have to shrink them down to one class each. <laughs> wow, I, I could kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, I could kind of tell that you you are um, also doing podcasts because I believe that the sound quality coming from you is very good. I think you have a microphone or something. Thank you. Yes, I have an RE twenty seven. Okay, yeah, because because of all our guests so far, you have the best sound quality, so it's definitely making a difference. And uh, we'll definitely uh, put the link into into uh, into the description area so that uh, anyone that's interested in the airline industry from Malaysia could uh, just tune in and listen to your podcast as well. Right. Thank you very much. We have we do have many international listeners, and it'd be great to add some from Malaysia as well. Awesome. Cool. We talk about the worldwide airline industry. We don't only talk about the U.S. Uh, right. Well, well, in some regards, I find the worldwide airline industry or out of the U.S. to be more interesting in some ways when it comes to their first class product and their routes and their just, I don't know, maybe because I'm an American, I spent a lot of time flying on American carriers that, and I've had experience with international carriers now that I find it a little more exciting, if you know what I mean. Well, you worked at Taka, so you know, you know what I mean, too. Well, that's true. I mean, around the world, airlines think about long haul travel or long distance trips differently than short trips. And so many trips in the U.S. are one to three hour kind of hops right. when you're flying seven, eight, nine, 14 hours, right? You almost have to think about the product differently. And it's the international carriers that really excel there, I think. Right. So our podcast is sort of the intersection of health, aging, and entrepreneurship because we're entrepreneurs, we run aging businesses, and it's related to healthcare. So turning to the pandemic a little bit, I don't want to get into the details of sort of how the airlines handled it, but what do you think is the experience that's been learned by the industry and what do you think they're going to do or how will they prepare if they're inevitably, inevitably, I can't even say it, there is another pandemic. Do you think there's major changes occurring in how they handle it? I think there are, Andrew, and uh, I could talk for hours on this, so I'll, I'll okay. keep, I'll try to keep it short. Okay. Sure. Um, you know, when the pandemic first hit, everyone sort of just went into triage mode. Demand right. dropped over 90%. People just weren't leaving their homes, right, let alone boarding an airplane. Plus, there was nowhere to go. Everywhere you'd want to go was closed, right? You couldn't go to Disney. You couldn't go golfing. You couldn't do anything that, you know, reason you might want to travel. Right. So the airlines quickly had to sort of uh, figure out are we going to survive this? So it went into a big cash generation mode. So airlines figured out how do we collect as much cash as possible? Some very creative financings were done using frequent fire programs as collateral right. and others. In the U.S., the government helped the airline industry. That didn't happen in most countries, but in the U.S., that helped some. And then once sort of everybody sort of could exhale and say, okay, we we have enough cash now that we're probably not going to run out of business. Now let's think about what this means. And I think there are a couple of big impacts. 
One is that I believe business travel has changed forever. Yeah. There's there's certainly a plenty of business travel that is already back and that will come back. But if you think about why people traveled for business before the pandemic, there are certain categories that I think are just aren't going to travel as much. One of those is intra-company travel. That represented almost 20% of all worldwide business travel before the pandemic. Wow. Never seen a customer, just seen people in your own company. And I think the advent of video technology, which existed before the pandemic, but was used only sparingly, but everybody's gotten so comfortable with it and is on, and learned through the pandemic that you really could get work done that way. Right. That I think that 20% of the business, a lot of that isn't coming back. There's also a certain amount of pre-pandemic business travel related to commuting. I think that's going to change because worldwide, I think businesses now have a different view of what work in the office is and the likelihood of a more hybrid office, maybe where you're in the office a couple of days a week, home other right. time is going to be more common. If you used to commute to your job by air, maybe you used to have to go once a week. Now, maybe you only go once a quarter or something right. like that. You know, it's funny when I was at US Airways, I recall being encouraged to travel to meetings and things like that. <laughs> yes. No, there is a totally different and it's totally different now because it's a cost issue, number one, but it's also just a different view of risk. I had a friend in New York who said to me, you know, Ben, I used to go to London for one meeting and turn around and then come back. He said, I'll never do that again. Because I never thought of that as a potentially risky behavior. Now, if I have four meetings, I'll still go to London. But if I just have one meeting, I'll just do it by Zoom. And that mentality is totally new. It's driven by the pandemic. And in a way, I think it's healthy. Right. All right. It's uh, it's and the industry, the airline industry's had to respond to business travel not all coming back, better use of technology to to allow customers to self-service so there's fewer and fewer personal interactions, and obviously on board the plane, thinking about changing the view of safety. Airlines around the world have been very safe and they've always viewed safety as operational safety, right? I'm not going to crash and kill you. I'm not going to let something hit my airplane or things like that. Now there's a whole new world of biological safety. How do I keep my crew and my customers healthy while they fly? And that's a whole new world that the airlines are now having to incorporate within their safety program. Yeah, speaking of speaking of which, there are actually a lot of fear among travelers nowadays about you know being in an enclosed cabin and having higher risk of catching the virus because of that. Uh, what do you think about this? What's what's your uh, take on on traveling in enclosed cabins during like pandemic and and maybe how how is it going to impact the future as well? Thanks, Dr. Lim. You're you're right. There is a lot of apprehension about that. Fortunately, airplanes themselves are are pretty efficient tubes. Now, you can't change the fact that you're trapped in a tube with 100 or more other people. But within that, there are some positive things. As, As the world has learned, airflow in an airplane is vertical. It's the air comes in from the top and goes down to the bottom. So if I'm sitting in my seat and I cough, my cough droplets are pushed to the floor. They're not sent to other people on the plane. You're also sitting in front of a seat. You're not facing another person. And the air is recycled with the outside air every two or three minutes. So as an environment, the airplane itself is actually relatively safe, as safe as, say, going to a grocery store or something like that. It's not as safe as just sitting home, of course. Um, but, um, But I think that, along with prudent ideas like wearing a mask when you're around a lot of people and things like that, will over time get people comfortable that it's okay to travel again. I think the industry has recognize the 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 need to protect people from a, a transmissible virus not only from a physical problem on the airplane and so 
I know there are going to be people who are nervous to get on an airplane, but those people would also be nervous being in any sort of crowded environment. Sure. And, and for some people, if they're not comfortable around crowds, then maybe flying isn't even the right thing for them. And that's unfortunate because that limits a lot of activity. I think that's a fair assessment. Yeah. So, so that brings up a couple of questions for me. One, when you talked about the air circulation in the cabins, all of that, some people would say, well, if I'm in a row of three seats or even two seats, what about the person sitting right next to me? Well, you're right about that. And um, there you can't really change that. And that is that is a risk. That's why, again, wearing masks, getting more of the population vaccinated are good general strategies. But, you know, we live a life with risks and and we walk outside, we drive cars, we do things. All of those things have a risky component to them. And we learn to live with that risk. Right. The world will get normal again if it does, because we learn to live with an ever evolving coronavirus, not that we wipe out the coronavirus, right? We've, we've lived with colds forever. We've lived with flus forever. And I'm not trying to suggest that this current virus, you know, isn't more serious than those, but at some point we're going to either live our lives with proper protections in the way we can, or we're all just going to shutter up in our homes. And that's not a good thing either. Yeah, t- two things I was thinking about. One, are mask mandates still enforced on airlines in the U.S.? And do you think that will continue for a while longer? They are officially still enforced until March 18th. Ah. Um, my my expectation is that though that mask mandate will be extended for at least through the summer. The reason I say that is the CDC in the U.S., the Center for Disease Control, has been sort of the public office that has guided policy around mask wearing and and vaccines and other things. They recently changed how they measure the effect of the virus. They used to track principally um, case count. Right. And case counts have gone way up, especially with the Omicron variant, since it's so transmissible. Well, now what they do is it's a more robust measurement where they check case count plus hospitalization rate, plus availability of hospital beds and things like that. And every county in the country has a rating, low, medium or high, about the risk of transmission. So if you're in a low area, you can... Do you cannot wear your mask indoors? You can do some more things versus if you're in a medium or high area, you might want to be more comfortable. The challenge when you get to an airplane is you're moving from one place to another. So to expect that people to say, I realize I'm moving from a medium area to a high area. So what do I do? I think they're going to say that's way too complicated on a mat on an airplane. You're still with a big crowd. Just keep wearing the mask through the summer. That's what I expect to happen. Sure. Like like here in Malaysia, at least, and actually several other Asian countries, our international travel is still basically shut down. I mean, it's very hard for me to get a direct flight from anywhere I want to go from KL, like Bali or Bank. There are some direct flights, but very few. The borders are still effectively closed in a lot of places. So we're lagging behind in this respect. What's sort of the load factor in the industry in the U.S. right now? Are they back bounce to kind of pre-pandemic levels? Where is it now? Well, they are kind of back to pre-pandemic levels in terms of load, but that's there's two there's two um, important factors of that. One is that it's almost all leisure travel, right? So the the rate, the ticket prices are lower on average. There's not a lot of business travel flying, and secondly, the industry still isn't flying all of its capacity. There's still a lot of airplanes on the ground. So they've controlled the capacity to keep the load factor higher. But eventually, all the planes that are sitting around on the ground and being paid for are going to have to get in the air again. You know, you talked about borders being closed for COVID. Now we have this terrible Ukraine situation. I was going to ask you. And that's going to change like where you can fly also if you can't. You certainly don't want to be flying over Russian airspace right now, I would think. So give us a sketch. Where do you see the major impacts are going to be? Well, I, I, I think that skirmish is just terrible, actually. For airlines, there's a couple of facts. 
One is just fuel prices. Russia is such a huge producer of oil that fuel prices, even just because of uncertainty, are certainly like to rise, certain to rise. So any business that use fuel like airlines does are going to see a higher input cost. But there are some other issues, too. I think it increases the apprehensiveness to travel. Um, you know, hey, maybe I was going to take a trip to to. Um, into Europe. And now I'm maybe nervous this summer about going to Europe because I don't know what's going to happen. So I think there's some apprehensiveness there. Russia is also a big producer of titanium. Titanium is a strong metal that's very light. So it's very popular on airplanes and in engines. And if the world titanium supply is reduced because people aren't buying from Russia, then that could... um, hold off deliveries on airplanes and engines and make it more difficult to get new product. Um, so there's a number of ways this, uh, this pandemic is affecting. I was talking to someone at an airline leasing company and they've got planes leased to airlines like a charter Russian airline and others. Right. And like the, the, the airline is still paying their bills, so they don't have a legal right to go repossess the plane, but they're thinking they're going to go repossess the plane because they don't want to be charged with dealing with Russia you know, and something. So there's all kinds of crazy things. Happening. Wait, how, would, how, would, how would they even get those Russian planes? <laughs> well, I'm not, I'm not sure how they'd go get them, but they're thinking like that's a risk that we're like, we're, we're doing business with a Russian airline and Maybe we shouldn't be, but they're paying. So what can we do? <laughs> did, did, did any of did any U.S. carriers foresee this and hedge on fuel at all? There hasn't been that much hedging in the U.S. for the last number of years. Okay. You know what's happened, in Andrew and Dr. Lim, is that airlines used to hedge to protect against volatility in fuel price, but airlines have learned that through more dynamic pricing and more dynamic scheduling, they can react with with how much product they put out and what they charge more quickly. Ah. And the recovery of high fuel prices through ticket price has gotten shorter. When fuel prices go up, the airlines can recover that. So hedging has become expensive and only a few airlines do it now. And fuel price hasn't been the problem. It is now with the Ukraine invasion. But through the pandemic, fuel prices weren't the problem. We had a demand problem. People weren't flying. So yeah. do you, do you, go ahead, go ahead, Dr. Lim. Yeah, as much as I would like to say that the Malaysian is far away from the conflict. The fact of the matter is during the last uh, conflict, uh, a Malaysian plane, Malaysian Airlines plane was actually shut down in in East Ukraine, uh, MH17. I think that's still fresh in our memories as well. So for Malaysians, it kind of feels a little personal as well because of the incident. And uh, and yeah, we really hope this this whole thing will blow over soon and and it's it's really causing a lot of distress for many of us internationally as well. That's a great point, Dr. Lim. You're right. That plane was shot out, was shot out of the air by Russians, right? And so people don't even need to look that far back in history to know how dangerous it can be in a difficult environment to have your airplane in the wrong place. Uh, Dr. Lim, tell uh, Ben where you went to medical school. Oh, I actually went to medical school in Moscow, Russia. So did I, you really? Yeah, so I, I did. I do speak the language and kind of also know what's going on as well. And uh, yeah, but but like j- just back to the conflict situation a little bit. Why why would the airline pilot decide to fly through a conflict airspace despite knowing the risk, or did he not know uh, before that, or were, were there no warnings and uh, they didn't see it coming? Or what do you think actually happened? I think there's a couple of ways to potentially explain that. Obviously, I don't know exactly what happened and I wasn't, you know, privy to any information about what happened in that cabin. But there's a couple of things. Number one, they could have been distracted and not realized that they were going into that airspace. That's certainly possible. Number two, they may have been what's called vectored, which is when a an air traffic control um person gives a direction to an airplane to fly a certain 
a certain direction and a certain altitude that's called vectoring them. Um, so they could have been vectored into that space and didn't understand how dangerous it would be and pushed back. They would have been able to say, no, we can't go that way. Root us another way. They might've just taken that, that um, announcement and just said, okay, and set the things and gone and not thought about it. And I guess um, the third way, which is, probably the least likely is they assessed the risk and just felt it wasn't that high and said, we'll save fuel. We'll make up time because we left late or something and we'll just go this way. And you know, what could happen, right? They could have said right. something like that. And I think any one of those things is possible. I don't know really what happened, but obviously they shouldn't have been there. Um, it's, it's terrible that the Russians shot down that plane, but, they, but, but they could have been avoided if the plane had not been there. Right, right. Um, a while back, you were sort of, for lack of a better phrase, sort of evaluating and kind of looking at the Asian airline industry. And I think when I talked to you about that, that was pre-pandemic. Um, do you still have any kind of interest in the Asian airline sector? And Especially... Especially the Malaysian Airlines, because uh, we are not doing well. <laughs> the answer is absolutely. Well, I serve on the board of an airline in India, um, Go Air, which is now right. the second largest airline in India, largely a domestic airline in India, but they also fly to Thailand and Sri Lanka and into the Middle East. They're an all narrow body airline, so they fly where you can, you know, close international that you can do from India. Um there was a period where um, a colleague and I were talking to the Malaysian government about potentially working with Air Malaysia and how the company could be restructured to be more profitable, how it could compete with very strong airlines around it, how KL might be able to become a hub to compete better with a Singapore or um or a Hong Kong or something like that. Right. But those talks um, were embryonic in a sense and never really went far enough. But I'm fascinated by airlines in Asia. I mean, airlines are about flying people and all the people are in Asia, right? <laughs> and, so, right. and so how can you not be fascinated with airlines in Asia? Well, it's amazing. You know, a, a huge low cost carrier here is Air Asia. Maybe it's like Spirit or Frontier. And you know, I can fly from here to Bali three hours for around 150 bucks round trip. And they've got like 10 flights a day and all of that. Now, obviously, I don't have any flights right now, but, you know, <laughs> the whole low cost industry is taken off here and it's opened off a whole range of travel opportunities for people in this part of the world. And I think that's fantastic. Travel, de democratizing travel by making it affordable for everyday people has been one of the real positives of the airline industry over the last 30 years. And it's come for a couple of reasons. It's come because of good technology. Airplanes have gotten better, more fuel efficient, um, lower cost to operate, and that's helped that. It's also come with a recognition that you don't have to be everything to everyone. Right. Airlines used to think that no matter why you fly, I will serve you. And it's hard to be that, you know, think about trying to run a restaurant where you serve really high end meals and you serve fast food. Right. It's yeah. like restaurants and everything else we buy has different kind of value at different price points. And the airline industry has adopted that over the last two couple decades. And it's created airlines like AirAsia, Ryanair in Europe, Spirit in the US, while you still have Emirates and Singapore and Delta Airlines and big airlines flying long trips and things. And that's good for consumers because they have more choice. Right, right. That's a, that's a really good point. Um, and this is completely unrelated. And I just love talking to you about airlines. But why do I feel like the business class and first class products on Middle Eastern and Asian airlines are always better than the U.S. carriers? Do you think it's just a desire that Americans won't pay for that level of product compared to Asian or Middle Eastern carriers? 
I think it's a couple things. I think they're better because they invest more in the physical product. They're willing to say, I'm willing to dedicate more space, better in-flight entertainment, um, a nicer physical seat. So they're willing to invest more than certainly the U.S. airlines have been willing to invest. That's one. Number two, they have depended on the fact that they're carrying very, very long distance travelers. And they understand that long distance travelers may be willing to pay something more. Even even someone who would be comfortable flying AirAsia to Bali or Spirit to an Orlando or something like that might be willing to pay more to fly halfway around the world, right? right? To be more comfortable, be able to sleep, you don't have to eat on a two-hour flight. You certainly have to eat on a 14-hour flight, right? right. <laughs> right? Things like that. And, and the other thing, and this is going to be a maybe, I'm not trying to be controversial by saying that, but the U.S. airlines are heavily unionized airlines. <laughs> and so the in-flight service on those planes is by people who are very senior, and many of them are very, very good. Right. But they but some of them are also just happy to only fly two or three trips a month. What the what an Emirates and what a Singapore does is they think about who's serving in that cabin differently. They have younger people, men and women um, who only are in that job for two or three years and they fly around the world and they learn about the industry. Then they go off and do something else. And that just creates a different attitude of service. In general, I've found in traveling in Asia, now tell me whether this is just a dumb American comment, okay? But I've found in traveling in Asia that service everywhere is better, <laughs> right? People, yeah, there's I can relate more to of that. a service attitude. There's more of a, we, we want to help. And I found that going to restaurants, going to shows, everything I've done in Asia is a more enjoyable experience in a sense. Yeah, I would say that flying on Asian carriers, they're de- they're they're generally more service oriented, um, and even even on shorter haul flights, there's a better chance you're going to get a meal on an Asian carrier than you would a U.S. carrier. Uh, so that that's pretty interesting. The other thing too is back to these Middle Eastern carriers and their service. I think also quite a few of them have been subsidized by their governments, and that has made a difference. I think in terms of the quality of service they provide. That they get the backing of carry of their governments and maybe the U.S. carriers don't get. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Andrew. Now, this podcast, you don't usually talk about airlines, right? <laughs> we, this is the first and probably the only time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but coming back a little bit to the COVID restrictions, right? Now, uh, in Malaysia, we have this uh, mandatory quarantine phase after traveling from uh, traveling internationally. Like, for example, if you uh, if recently I just came back from Saudi Arabia and I landed in KL, Kuala Lumpur, and I actually had to go through a seven-day quarantine period, which is now five days if you're boosted. And it's mandatory. You, you can't leave the home. You know, you got to get all your testing done at the same time. And uh, this has been going on um, since the sort of uh, loosening up a bit on the restric- international travel restrictions. And I understand that in the US, there are no mandatory a quarantine uh, necessary for international travels as well. Like as a as an expert in this field, I, I don't know whether this is a fair question to ask you or not. But uh, based on your experience, you know, uh, on your or your opinion, what do you think? Is it is it necessary to do this quarantine? Does it help, or it's just you know too too much of a hassle? Or... Well, it's a, it's a great question, and the reason it's such a good question is it's the primary reason that international travel on airplanes is still so depressed because people just don't know there's a risk that they may get stuck. If they fly someplace and then they test positive, they may have to quarantine at their expense, not be able to get home. Um, And so I think the uncertainty around that is is exactly one of the reasons that international travel around the world is really depressed. Whether or not what, you know, I'm not, I'm not experienced to talk about whether quarantining works or not. So what I would say, what I would lobby for if I were king of the world is to have clear 
consistent messaging about what has to be done. Um, if you want to fly today from a U.S. city to a city in Europe or in Asia, it takes time to figure out what what I'll need to do before I go, what I'll need to do when I get there, what restrictions I may have while I'm there. Um, do I know where I'll get a test? Do I know what that test will cost me? Do I know the implications if I test positive? To figure all that out and believe that by the time you fly, it's not going to change. It's just so difficult. And so people just say, look, I won't travel right now. I'll wait till it's easier. And the and that's the real challenge of this whole thing. Quarantines probably make sense. If you believe you're infected, you don't want to infect other people. I'm vaccinated. I'm boosted. I wear masks in crowds, right? So I'm as I right. try to behave like a like a prudent world citizen, right? But but at, but at the same time. One of the reasons, like I'm on the I'm on the board of this airline in India, but I've not been back in India since the pandemic. And one of the main reasons is if I fly to Mumbai, I can't risk testing positive there and having to be there for two weeks. Yeah. I mean, I've had <laughs> I mean, I've been trying to get up. I want to go up to Thailand for a couple of days and relax. I haven't left Malaysia in over two years now. And that's the longest I've ever spent in one country, not leaving the country. And I looked at the, the the Thai website with the list of instructions. It was like three pages long. You had to quarantine and they select the hotels you have to quarantine in. And they're all really expensive. And I figured out the hotels that I like that are relatively inexpensive and all that. And I'm like, I'm not going to do this until it's open completely. I just don't want to go through that hassle. Yeah. And I, I think I think you're like a lot of people, Andrew. <laughs> yeah. And one thing you're right about, Ben, is uh, that the rules change all the time. They move the goalposts uh, so drastically. And sometimes so many people are not well-informed as well. And in Malaysia, um, what we've experienced uh, over the past two years is not just with airline travels, but with the whole general COVID rules that are even in industry, in, in uh, whether it's in um, nursing homes that we run, is changing so fast and all the time. And, and we, we are just struggling so hard to catch up. And uh, I really hope it's going to get clearer as time goes by. And even your brother experienced that in December or January coming back into Malaysia, right? Yeah, because they suspected yeah. that he had Omicron and they had to quarantine him for 10 days in a, in a government uh, hospital facility. So, uh, yeah, it, it was it was quite crazy and it's changing all the time. So, yeah, we, we, we are really struggling to, uh, to catch up with the rules. I've had I've had Zoom meetings with people who are on quarantine. <laughs> and they're like, well, I'm in my hotel room, but I have the internet, so I can still have this meeting. And then it's like, right. it's kind of, it's kind of funny. Right. So, sort of to, to wrap up uh, a broad question. You know, the airline industry has been through 9/11. It's been through pandemics. It's likely going to see something else in the future. How do you see the industry kind of addressing these, you know, externalities down the road? Are they thinking about them? You know. Maybe maybe there aren't billions of dollars available in the next crisis for the airline industry. Uh, I kind of felt like, why didn't airlines have a better cushion to survive the pandemic? Or maybe they could. Maybe it's just impossible. I don't know. But I kind of felt that way at some point. How do you see it going forward in terms of how they look at their finances, how they buy back shares and all of that? What, what a fantastic question, Andrew. I, you know, this, this pandemic surprise the industry in so many ways. And you would think that this is an industry that should be used to surprises. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> I I used to work with someone who said the airline industry is the only industry where a once in 10 year event happens every quarter. <laughs> and I thought that was funny. But even with all that, no one anticipated a literally a literal knife edge cutover where just nobody would fly anymore and everything you would go to do traveling just shut down and it was it was shocking to the industry and i think airlines what what airlines and even other businesses have learned through this is a couple things 
Number one, we have to be much more flexible and we have to recognize that our world could change on us much more quickly. So how do we build our organizations to be able to react at least more quickly to that? Number two, um, one of the reasons it has been so harmful for airlines is that airlines are a huge fixed cost business. Yeah, the their people, their airplanes are huge costs, and those costs don't go away if nobody's flying. They're still there. Now they save fuel costs because they're not flying, so they're not buying, you know, gasoline, and so that's a good thing. Um, but I think airlines have started to figure out how can we become more variable costs, meaning when we don't fly, we don't lose a lot of money. And when we do fly, we have the opportunity to both spend money and make money. So what, what does that, that mean? Can I, can I ask you, what is it? Does that mean not owning a lot of planes or does it mean something else? It could mean it could mean not loaning a lot, not owning a lot of planes. It could mean leasing with an ability to um, to change payments in a in an extreme environment. Obviously, that would that sort of merges a lease with an insurance product, right? right? So it might be more expensive, even good times to having that right when in bad times, but you might be willing to pay that kind of insurance. It also could mean in your labor contracts, it could meaning have more reserves or more flexibility or more institutionalized time off, extended time off, where I can tell you, I'm sorry, Dr. Lim, or I'm sorry, Andrew, we don't need you for the next year, but your job is secure when you come back. Right today, there, right. there's today they have to do those things by negotiation or by fiat or something. But having structures that allow you to say, sometimes I may need a lot of people, sometimes I may need fewer, and so understanding how you can do that in ways that are human that treat people well. Um, so it's it's planes, but it's also people and it's also schedule. Right. United Airlines in the U.S. did something interesting about six or eight months ago. They announced that they were going to stop predicting the pandemic. And they said, instead, what we're going to do is we're going to have available to us four or five different schedule options based on what the world is giving us in during the pandemic. And I talked, we talked on our podcast with Andrew Nacella, who's the CE, who's the chief commercial officer at United. Yeah, I remember. And him. he talked about, yeah, I'm sure you do remember Andrew. And he talked about how much work that was, but how flexible it was that they would decide one week, here's the schedule we're going to launch next week. Here's the schedule we're going to launch. But that changed the way pilots bid their trips. It changed the way flight attendants bid their trips. So it's partially the airplanes, but it's a lot about scheduling people and all kinds of things. And I'm not suggesting you can get to the point where if you don't fly, you're not spending any cash. Right. But you can change it to where you can react to these big changes more quickly. And every airline right now is thinking about how do we not let this happen to us again? What do we need to do? It's also changed the view of how much cash an airline believes is prudent to just keep on their balance sheet. Airlines used to think if I got a lot of cash, I'll buy back my shares, I'll give a dividend. I'll go buy something I don't need right, or something yeah. like that. Um, now they're thinking, well, what I used to think was an appropriate cash position really wasn't appropriate for this. So maybe that has to be bigger too over time. Right. And also with these external shocks, do you think that will accelerate the actual technology of planes and making them fuel efficient? Do you think you'll see a ramping up on having improved planes and expediting kind of that technology? Well, I certainly hope it will. I mean, right. that's dependent on engineers and uh, and the production abilities at worldwide engine and airplane shops. It, you know, if we can sort of talk about one other thing that we haven't talked yet, sure. there's also prior to the prior to the pandemic, this wasn't as true in the U.S. But if you looked around the world, in Asia and in Europe especially. Airlines were talking a lot about sustainability, right? And the their, their contribute their contribution 
to global warming and and carbon emissions and things. And so I think that what the pandemic has done merged sort of with this view of maybe I should even fly less because it's not great for the planet. It's an interesting combination of things that is affecting business travel, that is affecting how airlines think using more sustainable airline fuel is going to continue to be pushed. And even though the airline, even though the airplane might dump as much carbon into the air as it does today with sustainable fuel, at least that fuel is fully sustainable because it's plant-based instead of a one-time use from getting it out of the ground. And, um, so I think that uh, I think that that's an interesting add-on to the way the world is going to think about both flying and the way airlines have to think about their business. We all have to be more um, prudent about the way we sure. use energy, and airlines use a lot of energy, and they create a lot of fluorocarbons. Right, so right. They got to they they can't ignore that. They got to say what's our contribution within that and how do we sort of make things better given that right that that's a that's as big a drive to making the technology better too i think sure sure um i have one last question and then we'll let dr lim wrap it up and this is kind of off the wall but and it's very current um quite a few russian airlines use the uh, saber reservation system do you think uh, saber should cut them off <laughs> wow what a fabulous question I've been on Twitter um, a lot these past few days. <laughs> you know, it's possible that governments, some governments around the world will ask companies not to deal with what they consider hostile actors, right? Right. And so that would be really crippling to the Russian yeah. airlines. I, I agree with you. I'm not suggest I'm not gonna suggest to Sabre what they should or shouldn't do. But I, but I would think that if a lessor believes they've got to take the airplane, then Sabre might think about, do I want to keep providing these services? You're not on their board, are you? No, I'm not. <laughs> all right. All right. Yeah, we're coming to the top of the hour and I really appreciate you spending your time with us, uh, Ben, today. Uh, I know it's still early over there in the U.S., uh, I I'm, I just have actually one last question, and this is I'm just going to go completely go off tangent, and it's completely okay if you're not comfortable with answering this question. But as you know, we mentioned just now the MH17 incident where the uh, Malaysian airline flight was shot down, and in the same year we actually had three air incidents from the Malaysian company. So Air Asia had a crash. We have MH17, and we also have MH370, which disappeared. Right, um, the flight MH370 that, that yeah. completely disappeared off the off, off the face of the earth. Um, do you do you know do you have an opinion about that? Do you know anything about that that you are you can share with us? You know, I here's what I'll say about that. The world watched all of those things happen, right? And the yeah. disappearance of that one airplane was just an amazing thing. I mean, and the you know, I guess there's general there's a general agreement now that the plane crashed somewhere in the Indian ocean. Right. I think there's that, but, but for a long time, people just really didn't know. And it, that changed people's views too, of, you know, we, our whole system of knowing where airplanes are presupposed that people in the airplane wanted you to know where they were. Right. (laughs) And so it, from a technology standpoint, I was surprised how relatively easy it was for the pilots on that airplane to make that plane disappear. And I think that's causing some changes and things. In terms of Malaysia itself, Malaysia is a great country and Malaysia has knows how to run safe airlines. I don't think there's, I don't think it says anything about the country or the country's oversight of safety or anything like that. The fact that those three incidents happened in a short period of time. When Andrew and I worked at U.S. Airways in five years, we had five airplane crashes. Right. But but we didn't think of ourselves as an unsafe carrier. It's just five separate things happened. And when they all happened together, you thought, what's going on here? But um, 
Air Asia is a good airline. Um, Malaysia runs a safe airline system. And so I think that uh, it's, it's really just coincidence that sometimes things go wrong. The, the shooting down of that airplane was completely unrelated to the plane that disappeared, which was completely unrelated to the Air Asia accident, right? Okay. And there are reasons each of those things happen, but it's coincidence that all three of them were related to Malaysia, I think. Right. Good point. Right. Okay. Thank you so much. Uh, ben, before we let you go, tell us, tell us again about your podcast and uh, we're going to put the link into the description. Tell us, tell thank us you. more. Yeah. The podcast is called Airlines Confidential, Airlines Plural Confidential. You can go to airlinesconfidential.com and see all the episodes. We're in our third year. I do it with a co-host like you guys. <laughs> I do it with a co-host named Chris Chimes, who you may remember. Andrew. Yes, I, I do. Yeah. 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 Chris is a, um, a longtime airline guy. He's also a communications professional. And so he brings a professionalism to the show that I don't have. And, um, <laughs> and, um, and it's a fun show. Each show is about 35 to 45 minutes. We often have guests on the show who are people who are doing things in the airline space. And, uh, and the one fun thing we do on the, each show is we have a section that we call Fine or Wine. And what we do is we read a customer complaint. And then we arbitrate as to whether the customer or the airline had the stronger point. So <laughs> is it fine that they complained or are they just whining? That's the ah, idea. Uh, and, very uh, interesting. And our listeners kind of like that segment. <laughs> yeah. Okay. To all the Malaysians out there, if you are interested to, to check out this podcast, the link is in the description. Andrew, you have something else to say? No, I'm great. I really appreciate you coming on, Ben. And it was really great to catch up with you. And I hope we can see you in the next year or two either here in Asia or back in DC. I would love to come visit both of you in KL. I've not been to KL, but I would really like to come. And I've been all around, but not, not into KL. And, um, and what I would say also is that um, if any of your listeners um, listen to the podcast and they want us, they want to send in questions or ask us uh, or want us to talk about specific things, let us know. Oh, we yeah. can make it the shows every week so we can always bring in interesting topics. We'll try to grow your international audience. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, thank you. And the one thing I'm nervous about is people are going to come to your show and say, I'm listening to the Doctorpreneurs podcast and I'm I'm waiting to hear about entrepreneurship and medical issues, and they're going to hear all this airline oh. talk. Oh, uh, no, you definitely have covered a lot about COVID restrictions and also the airline okay. industry about costing and everything. I think those are valuable information for our listeners. Yeah, and the fact is we're entrepreneurs and business guys, and I'm a former airline guy. And as you know, Ben, once an airline guy, always an airline guy. So, <laughs> so I love doing this. And I don't care if nobody listens to this. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. Well, thank you very much for a thank very uh, enjoyable conversation. Andrew, it's great to see you again. Dr. Thanks. Lim, it's great to meet you. And I do, it would be great if we could all get together in person sometime in a year or two. Yep. Sounds the pleasure, good. The pleasure is all ours. And uh, thank you for staying with us until the end. Um, for, uh, you can always click on the subscribe button if you're watching us on YouTube and also find us on all major podcast platforms. You're on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. Uh, thank you for listening to us. This has been the Dr. Pronounce Podcast. I'm Dr. Lim, together with my co-host, Andrew Mestrin Donas, and our guest, Ben Baldanza. See you all. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. This is the Dr. Podcast.